Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You got the mic where you want it? I think so. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. I am Dr. Mike Todorovic. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Matt Barton. How are you, Matty? Hello, Michael. I thought you were going to say esteemed like you usually do. No, I wouldn't do that because... Steamed? Like a oh, yeah. sauna? Oh, you just got out of a sauna. Yes. I can tell. <laughs> Red. <laughs> Sweating. Big well, sweat I'm patches. I'm nervous because I'm stressed. Oh, why are you stressed, Matt? Today's topic... Is stress. Stress. You're stressed about the topic, which is stress. Which I think can be broken into you stress and de-stress. But I don't know any more than that. I don't even know what that means. I think it just means like detrimental stress versus beneficial stress. Uh, that's interesting. Stress that you can use that would have an Motivate advantage. Motivate Versus that could be maladaptive. Is that sort of like the stress of studying for an exam? Maybe. Yeah. Or, be, or the stress before delivering a... Talk, maybe public speaking, but the, for some people that would be debilitating. For me, it's my life. Oh, no, you force. love it. Yeah, I love. Well, I could talk forever, as the <laughs> listeners probably know. So today we're going to be talking about stress specifically. We're talking about stress and the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, and probably even more specifically, we're talking access talk- or access. Axis. Okay. A X I S, and more specifically, we're talking about cortisol and stress. And it's cortisol, the stress hormone. Yeah, I think that's an interesting uh, place to start. It's really topical. Yeah, because it's not really a hormone that produces stress. It's a stress response hormone. Response to stress. Yes. Mm. And that's what... So people will look at cortisol and they think that, oh, cortisol 
equals stress. But cortisol is produced in response to stress to try and mitigate and, stress. And cortisol is bad. Yes, that's what people say, yeah. right? Yeah. But it's actually, uh, well, it's so... You re- die without it. Like, just, yeah. just don't beat around the bush, Michael. That's fair enough. Especially if the bush is on fire because then you'd need stress cortisol. Out. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Um, I think we should first start by defining stress. So no, I think you should do that. Okay. Um, I think, well, I shouldn't say I think. Uh, the best way I can define stress is that stress is a, an actual or perceived threat to homeostasis. So everyone listening, most people listening probably are thinking about stress in regards to the stress of an exam or the stress of submitting something on time or the stress of life. life. But stress is more broad than that. Mm. Stress encompasses not just that psychological stress, but m- probably the physiological stress that we experience as well. And like I said in the definition, stress is actual or perceived threat to homeostasis. And if we highlight again that homeostasis is that happy, healthy range that all the functions of the body need to maintain. You can pick any function of the body, right? Blood pressure, heart rate, respiratory rate, blood glucose. They all need to sit within a happy, healthy range. It's not one number that they must be, but it's a range of numbers with an upper and lower limit. Now, anything that can push this range too high to above the upper limit or too low below the lower limit is pushing it out of homeostasis and therefore is a threat to homeostasis. And that thing can be called a stressor. Yep. And so think of anything that can push blood pressure out of whack, push blood glucose out of whack, push whatever out of whack, that's a stressor. Mm. And therefore, that's what we're talking about when we're discussing stress today. We will talk about what we probably more colloquially term stress as that psychological stress we will talk about which is that. which is important for more for humans yeah but when we go down the animal kingdom stress exists but probably not to the mental level of humans uh, absolutely right and yeah. so i think with that said we can then look at well why would a stress response exist and ultimately i guess is wrapped up in our survival and it may go d- back to the most basic forms of life. So if it has been retained from, let's say, single cell, or maybe not single cell, but simple multicellular organisms all the way to humans, yeah. there has to be a reason for it. Yeah. Because evolution doesn't hold on to things um, if it's not a benefit. Well, it, not for that long at least. If it doesn't confer survival. Because usually... I mean, it, it, it can, because there are certain traits that can come along for the ride with... Other beneficial traits. So, so to say that we every function that we retain has an evolutionary benefit is not true because there are functions that we have that we retain because it just comes along for the ride with other functions that we require. Um, it's called a spandrel, th- mm-hmm. those types of functions. But something like this, this is a this is a very uh, a broad, overarching, important function that seems to translate through all organisms. Mm. Therefore, there's going to be a very strong evolutionary pressure to keep it. And I think now that we've defined it as though stress is any actual or perceived threat to homeostasis, it makes sense because disease is simply when homeostasis is kicked out of whack. And so your body's going to do everything it possibly can 
to maintain homeostasis. And that is the stress response. Mm. And cortisol is going to be the primary hormone we talk about for this. And so it makes sense then if you go, well, if there's a whole range of different stresses that can push all these different functions out of whack and cortisol is one of the main response hormones to deal with this, it makes sense to therefore postulate that cortisol has a very wide range of effects. Yeah. Would you agree that that's the case? I, I would. Yeah. So we're working off the basis of homeostasis then and even if we go back to more simpler uh, animals. So what? we're talking about the Barton household here. Okay. So if you look at the, the two states that uh, an organism can be in, it's either... An Queensland act- or New South Wales. <laughs> it's an active state or a resting state. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I'd say, yeah, taking everything to its... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, yep. So then based on whether, whether an organism is in, in an active phase or a, a resting phase, then its metabolic activity would be either in an anabolic or a catabolic. So building up or breaking down. Yeah. All right. For the, um, the needs of that situation. So if you're active, irrelevant to what that activity is, you need energy. Yep. And when you're resting, you want to conserve that energy. Makes sense. Are you happy so far? Yep. You, you want to conserve that energy for your next active phase. Right. All right. And so as we get more complex in the hierarchy of animals, you then need to uh, separate function into different kind of organ systems, let's say. Right. And so one of them would be a neurological system to basically a communication system. So neurologically, a communication to be able to tell cells, this is what I want you to be doing now versus another period. Yeah, fast, direct, and short acting. Yeah. So then you go into a neurological system that you don't really want to be consciously um, aware of all the time. So you ha- we develop a, a neurological system that's autonomic or automatic, all right? So things that um, we don't want to consciously compute because it's a lot of um it's wasting our awareness isn't it so we don't want to know every time your heart beats you know you don't want to be consciously aware of of pushing your your fecal material through your you know couple of feet of colon yeah so then we develop a autonomic autonomic system which is a system for inactivity resting and one for activity and I know these are sometimes referred as rest and digest and then uh, fight and flight. But you may say that the fight and... I think the rest and digest is pretty good, but the fight and flight, it's not always um, you're running for your life necessarily. No. Right? You're just in a, an active arousal state. Does that make sense? So with the stress response, we're really working with that, uh, that more fight and flight, let's say, response, which is the sympathetic response, which is... Like you said, when you're aroused, you need your heart rate up, you need your blood pressure up, you need your respiratory rate up. But you also need to, because you're going to be probably working a bit harder, you need to uh, maintain your temperature and other things at the same time. So this could then push you into a state where uh, you're not stressed, but you just need an ability, you need a system to, to be turned on to kind of work with that more aroused state. Uh, that's a good point. So... I think a lot of people think that stress is synonymous with the sympathetic nervous system. And in a way it is, but it's more so it works hand in hand. So our stress response mechanisms 
include the sympathetic nervous system, but also include the varying um, uh, effects of cortisol. And, and I think that's really important. And they, and they both sort of work off the back of each other. And like you said, the, the way I always think about it is the sympathetic nervous system is that immediate response to danger. What can my body do right now to keep me safe? Right, And so when I say safe, I'm saying there's an immediate threat to my life, to my existence. So any, my body's going to have all these effects that can do whatever it can to try and either make me fight as hard as possible to win or run as hard as possible to, to, to get away. And that's sympathetic nervous system. But that doesn't help us in other aspects of stress. So we need a way to be able to sort of mobilize energy. We need a way to sort of... Um, suppress various aspects of physiology so that our attention and our energy is diverted to what's needed in that moment. Um, you know, we need to exacerbate aspects of the sympathetic nervous system, so potentiate it. And so this is where cortisol comes in. It sort of supports that sympathetic response but does a couple of other background things to make sure once that's, that um, – extremely life-threatening situation has finished that we can actually recuperate for the next stressful event. Yeah. That's cortisol in yeah. my eyes. Yeah, I think that's good. And, and I, so I think the, the basically the take-home point here is in an arousal state, if it warrants a fight-and-flight response, which is survival, you need to prepare yourself for that next event. Yes. And that's what the stress response is kind of doing with cortisol or eventually will build into is what do you, how do you put yourself in a situation so you have all your metabolic state is ready for that burst of stress yeah. at that high level for your survival. Yeah. That's right. Now, I would imagine I would imagine that the most animals will just have this kind of on and off switch and the benefit of this stress response is that in situations where you are, it's all about survival. So comparing you running for your life to survive versus you running after, let's say, an animal to eat, there's going to be a slight difference, right? So yeah. you, both will be stressful. Both will have the same response. But if you retain the the outcome of now you've survived, that's much more beneficial for your life than um, running after a... Uh, so you're moving into the psychology of the stress response. So you're saying that if, if the perceived outcome of a stress is I may die or your perceived outcome of the stress is I'm actually safe in this scenario, there's going to be a, a change in the physiology... Well, you look at look you look at a stress response, right? And it, there can be aspects to it that that are negative, okay, which then c- can cause certain detriment to you, right? But if the in one outcome you have survived, the the negative effects that can come is a lot secondary than dying, mm. right? Where, does that make sense? Yeah. Whereas, well, the worst thing that can happen to you is death, right? Exactly. Whereas if you are say you're more of a predator and you still need a stress response to do your hunting, if you miss a few, um, you're still going to get a stress response and maybe some detriment, but the fact that you still have that potential to be able to save your life, it outweighs the other, Okay, if that makes sense. So when we, look at a, when we look at a stress response, many people will see it as, 
oh, it's all negative. But in a way, it is a protective response. And if when you compare it to other protective mechanisms, like pain, like uh, vomiting, like coughing, um, what else could be negative? Fever, inflammation. Yeah. These can also be perceived as negative. But if you don't have pain, what's the negative from that? It's all context, all context specific, right? So inflammation within a context is beneficial. Right. Pain in a context is beneficial and stress within a various a particular context is beneficial. And there are scenarios, like you said, where it starts to become detrimental and inflammation lasting too long, detrimental. Um, uh, pain without a known cause or, again, lasting too long, detrimental. Stress lasting too long, detrimental. Yeah. So a, a lot of the time, the, the context is simply time frame. And, and I would say stress is part of this because th- the body has evolved the stress response to be a shorter term mechanism to help you deal with the issue at hand mm. and also to help you recoup and regenerate for the next issue that may arise. That's how I've always seen it. And so, th- the la- but but it wanes, right? It, 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 you have these spikes and then these troughs, peaks and troughs, peaks and troughs for your stress response. And... What you want is overall, if you average out the peaks and troughs, it may stay a little bit high for a short period of time and then drop down for another period of time. You don't want these peaks and troughs to average out really high. And then that's this chronic stress. Yeah. And then that's going to result in in a whole range of negative effects, which we can have a chat about. Yeah, but I agree. But also looking at these protective responses like pain, fever, vomiting, stress – we as humans usually associate them because there is suffering with it, right? There's yes, suffering with yes, pain, yes. there's suffering with vomiting, there's suffering usually with stress. So we associate this with a negative thing. Yes. Does that make sense? But the fact that if you were walking along and you were cut your foot open, um, if you didn't have the pain response, you'd just keep walking and then you'd bleed out and die. Yeah, or you'd get infected and you die. But And then I think also... Because the use of, say, medications where we block these protective effects, like you block pain, you block coughing, you block vomiting, we then think they're useless. But in fact, if you were to block, say, coughing, like a suppressor cough, it may then lead to pneumonia and you die. Or uh, diarrhea, if you have an infection, like a serious infection, and you just put in a couple of uh, pills to just block yourself up from pooing, um, the infection may stay within you and then it just becomes septic and yeah. then you die from it. And again, this is all still homeostasis, mm. right? Too much or too little, you know, we need the happy, healthy balance. So I guess what I'm trying to say is um, we perceive stress as this negative thing, but it's always in the background. Yeah. Uh, and it's to put us in a situation where when we're responding to different situations, if we didn't have it, we wouldn't be able to adequately yeah, react to it. Yeah. And so with animals that have been, let's say their stress response has been removed, they don't have the ability to then react to certain situations for their own survival. Yeah? Yeah. All right. Is there anything else in, the, in that space of why we think it... It really exists. Stress, you're saying? Yeah. Um, 
at the moment, no, I, 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 stick, right, so I stick to my definition at the beginning as a perceived or actual threat to homeostasis. All right, so if stress is seen, if hopefully we've made an argument to say stress is important and in certain, certain situations it's going to confer a benefit for your own survival and it's a good thing. So why not put us in a situation where we always have stress? Why not just have stress all the time? Because again, homeostasis. Things need to, sometimes we need to push the body in one direction just to push it back in the other, right? A pendulum that swings, right? You got to push it in one direction so it can swing back into the other direction. The last thing you want is to push it in one direction and keep it there because the body has buffering capacity, only so much. So when you look at the effects of stress, it is, again, context-specific. It is to keep us alive in a particular context, in a particular moment. Once the stressor has disappeared. So, well, think the, of it like so the, wait, wait, wait. The stressor could be you coming at me with a knife. The stressor could be um, I am in a really, really, really hot environment. The stressor could be my blood pressure has started to go up for whatever particular reason. These are all stressors to the body. And the stress response is there to counteract the stressor. Once the stressor has gone, once the stimulus is gone, mm. if we maintain a stress response, yeah, yeah. we're pushing it in the other direction. Well, that's my, that's gonna, my question. And we're going to get crook. So, so what's that movie where you know the guy takes a drug or something and he's just got superhuman abilities? Like cognitive abilities. Yeah, and, all that. Like yeah. he can run forever. With Bradley Cooper. Yeah, I think that's it. I've never watched it. but I've, uh, I've watched mm-hmm. it. I liked it. I can't remember what it's called. So let's just say in a stress response, you get a super fast uh, cardiovascular system. Your cognition is exceptionally good. All your abilities is so heightened. Um, you have the perception of, wow, this I'm so superhuman. I can do everything. Right? Limitless. Right. So my question is, why don't we just put ourselves in this situation all the time if we're so efficient? Uh, because we're only efficient in that moment in that context, Right. That's it. Because, so, if, all right, this is where we need to start being specific yeah. about what actually the stress response does and i.e. what cortisol does. So the types of things that it does is it mobilizes energy substrates into the bloodstream like glucose. Mm-hmm. Now, you may, may think that's great. I've got energy in the bloodstream to be utilized for work, right? But the problem is that this energy that's locked in the bloodstream needs insulin to also be released, which is the key to cells, opens the door so glucose can be taken into muscle tissue and fat tissue and utilized. But cortisol, funnily enough, the tricky thing that it is, it may mobilize all this energy in the bloodstream, but it doesn't let insulin do its job. It blunts the effects of insulin. So it keeps the energy source in the bloodstream. Now, people listening may think, wait a sec, this doesn't make sense. Why would you say, hey, here's a chocolate bar, but you can't eat it? Right? You'd think, here's the chocolate bar, eat it, now you've got energy. Mm. But again, the, the point is because now you've got intermediates, you've got building blocks present in the bloodstream so that once the stressful event is over, you've now got the substrates available to rebuild, to repair, to yep. replenish. And get ready for the next stress. And get ready well. for the next stress. So if, if you keep thinking about that yep. and say, okay, well, that sounds like a good thing. I always want to have available building blocks in the bloodstream. Yeah. Yep. 
What we all know, or what we probably all should know, is one of the most important building blocks, or at least energy substrates, is glucose. Now, glucose in the bloodstream must have a happy, healthy balance, a range. It's homeostatic balance, right? What is it? Between four to six millimolar sort of concentration. You can go a little bit higher, a little bit lower, but around about four to six millimolar. Um, If you've constantly got high levels of glucose sitting in your bloodstream, it's damaging. It's going to damage the small blood vessels. And there's, a, there's actually a case where it's called adrenal diabetes. There you go. Because of this purpose. Yeah, yeah. It's overstimulating, telling the, the liver to release all this glucose into the bloodstream and the elevated continual, um, uh, the continual elevated glucose in the bloodstream is damaging. Yeah. So that, that's the point I'm trying to make is yeah. that in the context, having high glucose there is good because once the stress is gone... Insulin will work. The cells can take up the energy in the building blocks and use it. Yeah. But if it maintains this, yep. you're blunting the, the role of insulin. This is diabetes. If, if, you're, if your body's doing something, if cortisol is continually blunting insulin's ability to take up glucose, that is no different to type 2 diabetes, right? Correct. Correct. So, so, so that's, that's just one issue yeah. with maintaining this stress response over time. But the... We can get to it in a sec, but the stress response or the cortisol response has a dozen other effects. Yeah. Oh, well, I was going to just, I had three main categories of why we shouldn't or All why right. it would be detrimental to Did I tick this. any of those boxes? Yeah, partly one. <laughs> All right. Well, finish so, that one so, and then go to the others. So, as a broad um, overview of what we spoke about so far, would you th- do you think it's fair to say the stress response in the context of least cortisol is to A, kind of prepare your body for the, the next kind of life-threatening situation, but also um, uh, recover from that last situation. Yes. So if there is tissue damage, flood your body with a whole lot of building blocks to repair that tissue damage um, and so forth. So I, I see it as though, yes, I do. I see it as though cortisol plays uh, three important... And learn from it. Three important time-sensitive roles. It plays an important role in the immediate by potentiating the role of the sympathetic nervous system. Okay, good. It plays an important role in the immediately after yep. um, by helping promote wound healing and pro- providing... Regener- pro- regeneration. Regener- yeah. Yes. And then a little bit after the whole thing, um, so a little bit long-term but a little bit after, by providing the substrates available for energy replenishment and preparing the body for the next event. Yeah, and, and, and maybe remembering it for next time. Yes, uh, we haven't really spoken about the psychological behavioural aspect, but we but we will. So that's that's how I see cortisol. It plays an immediate, a short-term and a longer-term effect when it comes to stress. Okay, so now to summarise why we would not have this all the time, and this is just not humans, it's, let's just say animals broadly, uh, highly energy expensive so it costs you a lot of calories to keep you in this space very true yeah. so it's not worth it long term it's a great there's a great cost benefit for it you're as i was trying to say earlier i didn't probably articulate very well but the benefit is survival which That's is right. worth it yeah. but the long term there is costs yes. energy, energy being one number two it interferes with other things you need to do for your survival like um, looking for food, for uh, looking for a mate, 
Made him. Yeah. <laughs> made him. It, Which is important, right? Yeah. It, you're right. It, 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 it opposes um, parasympathetic function, basically. Mm-hmm. So it opposes digestion. It opposes growth. It opposes reproduction. Um, it, it opposes various aspects of the immune system. All of these things are required for survival, at least long-term yeah. survival. So when you're in a stress response, you know, it's common for people to say, at least in that response, you're not hungry. And that's kind of because you, yes. you turned off the eating behavior. Yeah. Right? Why would and you want to have a burger right now when someone's coming at you with a knife? Yeah. Or, or shortly after. You're, or still, shortly, you're yeah. still highly stressed, so you're not really focused on food. So if that's just continuing, you're not eating. Yep. And then lastly, this is the one you alluded to, <laughs> is just tissue damage. There's a yeah. lot of detriment throughout the body by having a stressful situation constantly on. Yes. And we'll go through those now because we're not right now, but we're now pivoting into how our stress response um, works physiologically. Yeah. Well, do you want to talk about how cortisol is produced and released? Well, that's what I was meaning. Oh, okay. Um, So now we're going to focus on more so of the physiology. We're going to talk about the production and release of cortisol and then its various effects throughout the body more specifically. So the place we need to start is the hypothalamus. And we know the hypothalamus sits at the base of the brain. It's an important area. It's the master regulator of the autonomic nervous system, which is starting to make sense now from what we've spoken about just before. And also master regulator of the endocrine system. Now, there's a group of neurons in the hypothalamus in an area called the paraventricular nuclei. So the, nuclei is just a group of neurons in the central nervous system. Does that mean they're parallel to the ventricles? That's very good. And Not the heart ventricles. No, no, the ventricles of the brain. Make, make, yes. Lateral ventricles. Yes, so the paraventricular nuclei is the site in which stressful stimuli will coalesce. All the stressful stimuli, all roads lead to Rome. Third all, ventricles. All stressful stimuli lead to, yeah, the third ventricles. Um, all stressful stimuli will lead to the paraventricular nuclei of the hypothalamus. Can I so, ask one quick question? Go for it. Is this, you said that stress is important for maintaining homeostasis. Yes. But the stress response is also a homeostatic response. What do you mean? Oh, it kind of works off uh, effectors, control centers. Yes. And sensors. Yes. Okay. Yep. So keep going, keep going. Okay, thank you. (laughs) So stress is going to stimulate the paraventricular nuclear. That was actually my question. What? That was going to be my question. The start of it, stress. What is, what's the afferent? What's the stimuli? I'll get there, buddy. I'll get there. So stress is going to be the stimuli and it's going to stimulate receptors in the paraventricular nuclei. This is going to trigger the release or the production and release of a 41 amino acid peptide called CRH, also known as CRF, which is corticotropin releasing hormone or corticotropin releasing factor. Yep. So this is being produced at the hypothalamus, specifically at the paraventricular 41 nuclear. amino acid. That's right. Probably a use, useless you know piece the of order? information. Yeah, I know. Every amino acid and what order they're in. Okay. Now, this gets released from the hypothalamus into a blood supply, which travels directly from the hypothalamus to the anterior aspect of the pituitary gland. So you've obviously got the pituitary gland, which sits beneath the hypothalamus, mm. and there's an anterior lobe and posterior lobe. 
Posterior lobe is important for oxytocin and ADH, also known as vasopressin if you're in the States. And anterior, a whole range of hormones involved in metabolism and growth and development. So they're usually trophic hormones. Usually trophic hormones. And when you hear the word trophic or tropic, it's telling you that this hormone is going to another gland to tell another hormone to be released. All, all that gl- gland tissue to grow, to get bigger, which then will result in more release. Yes, but the hormone, it's, it's, it, I'll get there. CRH is released, travels through this uh, blood supply to the anterior aspect of the pituitary gland, and this then stimulates the release of another hormone called ACTH, which is adrenocorticotropic hormone. And the great thing is the name tells you where it goes and sort of what it does. So adreno travels to the adrenal gland, Cortico travels to the cortex of the adrenal gland. Tropic tells you it's going to release another hormone at the adrenal gland. So that's what ACTH does. Jumps into the bloodstream, systemic circulation, goes everywhere, but will only bind to receptors specific for it. And most of these receptors are found at the adrenal gland, specifically the cortex, more specifically an area of the cortex called the zona fasciculata. And there are receptors. Which is the biggest part of the cortex. Biggest part of the cortex containing receptors called MC2R, which is melanocortin type 2 receptors. And that's what adrenocorticotropic hormone will bind to. Which is interesting just as a side point. Melanin or melano or melanin uh, is the pigment in your skin. Yeah. And then if you do have too much of this ACTH, it will stimulate your melanocytes and you will become discolored. So a side effect of some abnormalities with too much release of ACTH is pigment changes. Lighter or darker, darker or both? Darker. Okay, so so a darker... Yeah, okay. so JFK had this Addison disease and he kind of was a bronzed colour. Oh, okay, interesting. That's because the feedback loop, um, as you're, gonna, you're going to explain, when you release the cortisol, it will feed back negatively to this, but because in Addison disease they have the feedback issue and they release huge amounts of ACTH, but it's not been responded to in the cortex. So other parts of their body is reacting to this melanocytes being one and they have a pigment change. Okay. Anyway, sorry. No, no, that's good. That's interesting. So once the ACTH is bound to the MC2R receptors, it then triggers, again, zona fasciculata at the adrenal cortex, Triggers steroidogenesis. And steroidogenesis is a production of steroids from cholesterol mm. as, a, as, as a basis. And it produces a bunch of glucocorticoids. The most important one and the only one we're really going to be talking about because it's the most abundant and active is cortisol. So ultimately, we go from the hypothalamus, we release CRH, travels to the anterior pituitary, releases ACTH, travels to the adrenal cortex, which then stimulates the production of cortisol, which is, again, a glucocorticoid. Now, the role now cortisol is going to be released into the bloodstream. It's yep. going to travel everywhere, and it's going to have a very broad, wide-ranging effects. And because cortisol is made from cholesterol through a process of steroidogenesis, it's lipid-based. Now, what right. that means is when we come across cells, the membrane of cells are also lipid-based. So steroid hormones don't exert their effects through surface receptors. 
they just move straight through the membrane and they go into the cytoplasm and they'll bind to receptors in the cytoplasm or they'll bind directly to DNA in the nucleus. Yep. And so in this case, cortisol needs to bind to a receptor called glucocorticoid receptor in the cytoplasm, which comes as a complex. So you've got glucocorticoid receptor with a couple of proteins. One important one is a heat shock protein. Once the glucocorticoid binds to the receptor, the heat shock protein disassociates and now the glucocorticoid receptor can translocate to the nucleus where it can bind to various um, what, what we call response elements mm-hmm. on the DNA. They're promoter regions, so they promote transcription. And then we What does pro- that mean? Well, it promotes the DNA to transcribe various genes. Okay. And so genes turn into proteins. Proteins have function. And so the types of genes that get transcribed are genes that are involved in a process known as gluconeogenesis to produce a bunch of glucose, to decrease inflammation, decrease various aspects of the immune function, so will the, and increase bone breakage, breakdown. So will, so will the um, transcription factors also, can it also downplay? Yes, that, it so can also negatively regulate okay. transcription as well. So yes. it can either bump it up or bump it down. Yeah, so for example, a way that it bumps it up is it bumps up an important gene called PEPCK. So, so this is phosphenol uh, pyruvate. Um, what is it? Phosphenol pyruvate. Um, oh, now I've forgotten. Great job. Something kinase. Okay. Good job, me. So basically what this phosphenol pyruvate um, kinase does is it turns oxaloacetate ultimately into pyruvate. And now we've got an energy substrate available. It's important for gluconeogenesis, the production of glucose from non-carbohydrate-based sources. So that's an upregulation of this gene. Okay. Um, so but um, a downregulation is downregulating T-cells and B-cells, for example, of the immune system, downregulating neutrophils and so forth. Okay, so I'm just going to uh, summarise everything you just said very briefly. And I want you to just... To, I thought I did. I just want you to then uh, correct me if I'm incorrect. So... pyruvate carboxykinase. I can't right. believe I forgot. So... The starting point for this stress response is stress. Okay, I don't want to get into mental stress at this point, but what are some of the stresses that you may, well, it may activate? So what type of stresses can trigger the paraventricular nuclei at the hypothalamus? Um, Anything that's truly external or internal that's going to be trying to push homeostasis out of whack. So the way I think about it is you can have various viscera organs of the body sending afferent signals to the hypothalamus saying hey something's going on in my intestines or my stomach or my heart or my respiratory tract or my tongue or my oral cavity or whatever it may be they're sending signals to the hypothalamus so so pain (laughs) well pain can be one but you can have um uh, distension you can have increased heart rate you can have increased blood pressure but is that it but is increased heart rate in and of itself or is that part of the stress response? Can be Well, think about it. Any time homeostasis is kicked out of whack. So if your heart rate is too high or too low, it's going to trigger a stress response. All right, I've got some... some think about have you have you... I don't know if you've ever... Have you ever had like a, a minor palpitation and it's made you, all of a sudden you felt stressed or anxious in that moment and it's resulted in an increased heart rate. You can have 
an increased yeah, heart just, rate triggering stress to increase heart rate. I just wonder if that's more of a mental, emotional response to still stress. Yeah, but I, as, I said, in the same area. as I said at the start, I don't want to talk about. The well, I don't think you stuff. can unpack them. All right, I'm going to. You can't. Uh, you can't I'm, separate them I'm because they d- trigger the same area. Yeah, I'm going to do it anyway. So certain things that are stresses: uh, trauma, which you said, um, a predator. Okay, that makes sense. Infection, intense cold or or heat. Um, restraint. So if you were to be <laughs> restrained, put in a cage. Yeah, I think we all know what restraint means. Disease, yep. so chronic disease. Yep. Uh, then we can get into more uh, emotional, mental stresses. But let's just stick with that. There's a stress. This stress is perceived in the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus will then release its releasing factor, which then goes to the anterior pituitary, which then releases the uh, ACTH. What does it stand for again? Adrenocorticotropic hormone. Okay. Which then goes in the blood to the adrenal gland, specifically the cortex, which then re- releases cortisol. In term, and these are called uh, corticosteroids. Now, specifically for the stress, it's a glucocorticoids. But there are two corticosteroids, right? Uh, mineral corticoids and glucocorticoids. Now, the reason why th- some are called mineral, because they will regulate... Uh, minerals like sodium, potassium. But the one that really does most of this is aldosterone. We're not going to talk about this now. okay? But the one we're going to focus on is cortisol, and this is called a glucocorticoid because what is its primary strongest function? Increase glucose in the bloodstream. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And that's going to be your way of uh, responding to the stress that started it all. So then you bump out cortisol into the blood and now, based on the actions we'll quickly go through, then hopefully it relieves the stress and it turns this off. Are you okay with that? Yeah. Okay. Do you want me to quickly just go through different parts of the body on how it responds to glucose? Glucose? Oh, sorry, cortisol. Yep. Okay. So the most profound, like we spoke about, the most profound effect is glucose being increased. Okay, because this is going to be very important for the way that your cells respond to and its metabolic changes. Now, the way that it does this, and this is interesting, uh, one of the most important things that the cortisol will do in the liver is do a process called gluconeogenesis. How does gluconeogenesis usually work? By producing glucose from non-carbohydrate-based sources. And what would that be? Proteins, fats... Fatty acids, glycerol, and amino acids, basically. Yeah, so the liver just becomes highly more well, highly more efficient in processing amino acids into glucose. But I would have thought you would normally, let's just forget the stress response for a second, if you wanted to make more glucose, you'd also want to break down glycogen, would you say? Yeah. Yeah. But in a stress response to, to cortisol, you actually make new glucose from protein but then you also mainly fatty acids. But you also store glycogen. Yes. So why Which would seems you Yeah. So why would you want to do that? Because you're preparing for the next event, mm. right? So in one phase, you're pumping out your liver's pumping out heaps of glucose from the breakdown of proteins and fats. But at the other side, it's actually storing some glycogen for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Moving to muscles, so the, the effect that cortisol will have on your skeletal muscles is will start to liberate the proteins. But, it, but from my readings, it appears that it seems to retain um, 
the mu- the proteins that are important for muscle contraction. Yeah, but and this is more so chronic as well. So co- a, a, a stress response that lasts 20, 30 minutes isn't going to mobilize amino acids from your musculature for gluconeogenesis. It's mainly going to mobilize fatty acids and glycerol okay, for so, that process. So in terms of the fat adipocytes, the the cortisol's effect is to break it up and release fat, free fatty acids? Um. Yes, and then that will go to the liver to um to process into glucose. Yeah, I mean, in so it's tricky because uh, uh, cortisol has a range of effects that are adipocytes. So similar, you know how you said that it promotes gluconeogenesis to pr- pr- to produce more glucose, but it actually preserves glycogen, the storage mm-hmm. unit. It sort of does the same with fats. It actually can promote adipogenesis. But only in certain locations, interestingly. Yes, and under other certain conditions. Mm. So if you think of lipogenesis... Um, so making new fat. Yep. Uh, it, it will decrease lipogenesis if you're fasting, right? So it's not going to make new fat when you're under fasting conditions. But if, you're got, if you've got insulin and cortisol at the same time, it's going to promote lipogenesis, which is an indication that you've got available substrates in the bloodstream. So what I'm just highlighting and I, here... I guess that would be a longer-term stress because this would be incumbent on you eating, right? Yes. And so then... And then this is the downstream effects of too much cortisol from, say, disease. You will redistribute your fat into areas of, let's say, the neck, the um, back, the face. And these mm. are the some side effects of the cushion... Syndrome. Yeah, well, well, have a think about it, right? If if one of the roles of cortisol is to increase blood glucose levels but blunt the effects of insulin, yeah. one of the main tissues that insulin works with is fat cells, adipocytes. So it spares adipocytes from being able to take in glucose and store it. So it doesn't let that happen. But it does promote the usage of fatty acids in gluconeogenesis. Um, and then depending on the scenario, can also promote fat storage as well, depending yeah, on... Yeah, in whether certain the, locations, yeah. Yeah, which, so is, but, which is interesting because it sort of sounds a bit paradoxical. So basically what's happening in this point is you've got a huge amount of glucose in your blood, but because of cortisol, you become insensitive to insulin, which means all your cells, all the, the main cells that would normally use glucose can't anymore, like muscle fat. And the only one that can really use the glucose is liver, which it's trying to store for glycogen, but your brain also. So your brain is soaking up all this glucose because it's its preferred fuel, right? Yeah, and the brain and liver are um, insulin independent. They don't need insulin to take up glucose. And my thought is part of the reason, I know you said immediately that the amino acid's not going up, but an effect of cortisol, I don't know, the time length, but you will still, you'll start to release a whole lot of amino acids. And the thought for why that might be, not only to make new glucose, but to have all these building blocks in your blood to then regenerate from that stressor. So if you did have a stress response of running away from a a predator and you had um, part of your hand bitten off, then you need to regenerate or stop that being infected and wound healing and so forth as well. Yeah. So you do need all those building blocks to be released. And I guess 
taking it from certain tissue that isn't immediately important versus one that will keep you alive is important. Yes. Okay. Um, any other parts of the body you think are important for where cortisol will act? Yeah, the immune system. Okay. Yeah. So should we talk about that briefly? I think we should talk about it in as much detail as we need to. Okay. Well, do, you, do you want to start? Well, all I really want to say is that generally speaking, it decreases immune function. Um, which is a very rough and ready way of saying it because it doesn't necessarily decrease all of immune function. It predominantly suppresses inflammation and aspects of inflammation. It suppresses T-cell formation. And some papers highlight that it actually moves from a Th1 to a Th2 type of immunity. So a a T-cell-based immunity to more of a B-cell-based immunity um, with cortisol. So it suppresses T-cells while sort of favouring more of the B-cell response and a, a, a memory cell-based response, an antibody, I should say, sorry, based response. It also suppresses neutrophil, um, uh, basically neutrophil movement um, yeah. throughout the body, which is obviously important in the acute inflammation phase. So the way I sort of think about it is cortisol suppresses acute inflammation um, while not necessarily significantly affecting long-term immune response. Unless... At, at least endogenously without a, a disease process underlying it. So if you were to have a stress response, it usually, I'd imagine, would be on, off, relatively quick, unless you have some pathology where it's long-standing. Yes, yes. And, and so sort of this highlights... So, so because it suppresses aspects of the immune system, it does this through trans, primarily through transcription, right? So jump into the DNA and decreasing the transcriptional activity of certain immune cells. So sort of decreasing the, transcription, uh, decreasing the transcriptional activity of certain types of cells like... Um, uh, interleukin-12, um, IFN-gamma, IFN-alpha, TFN, tumor necrosis factors. It sort of decreases their production, their expression, but increases the expression of other immune cells. So that's why it's sort of tricky to say. But it, it's important to highlight that synthetic glucocorticoids like dexamethasone, prednisone, they're used for this as immunosuppressants. Yeah. Um, and again, there, there's significant side effects of using these long-term to the immune system and to other aspects. And just so, you, just so you know, um, the glucocorticoid action of cortisol, which is what you're releasing from your adrenal gland, has an activity of one, okay? Prednisone is 10 and dexamethasone is 30. Wow. So dexamethasone is 30 times more powerful than cortisol in, in its glucocorticoid action. So this is what we're talking about now. Now in terms – and like you said uh, – these glucocorticoids can be useful for inflammation in the immediate, but they can also be useful for established um, inflammation, which is probably how we hijack them in medicines. We bring them in later to try and get rid of certain detrimental uh, inflammatory states like, say, rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah. You want to get rid of that because that's going to cause harmful effects downstream. Yeah. And actually, to be topical... We use these steroids in... As a topical cream. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. I wasn't thinking that. But that's right. You put it topically because you don't want it to go systemically because we've hopefully what we've pointed out so far, it acts on so many different things. And but there, so, are, there are oral... Well, that's what it's going to get to. Yeah. So the topical part 
is COVID, and one of the things COVID nineteen. Oh, sorry, not you're not you're not saying the topical cream. Not for sorry. Uh, is probably one of the ways, or maybe a couple of ways that people die from COVID is a super inflamed lung mm. and uh, a shock like state. The shock like state, probably sepsis like shock, is driven by Huge amount of cytokines. Systemic inflammation. Cytokine storms or storm. Yeah. Um, and the use of a strong steroid, a strong corticosteroids, a strong glucocorticoids, uh, stronger than cortisol, stronger than prednisone, 30 times stronger dexamethasone, mm. may blunt the cytokine effect to put you in a septic shape, state, which will then cause uh, multi-cell, multi-organ shutdown, mm. which is something you don't want. As well as so, you're, sorry, you're saying that the dexamethasone that is prescribed stops this from happening. Yeah. Okay. Through the effect that you're talking about being, it's anti-inflammatory. Mm. Uh, and this is just that mitigation. Pendulum, this is that pendulum swinging, right? So if the pendulum has swung too far in one direction with inflammation. So you take dexamethasone, which really pushes that pendulum in the opposite direction to try and maintain some balance, some normality. Yeah. Yeah. So just a couple of things to add on from your anti-inflammatory. A number of other things I just added to it. One of the the most important effects that these steroids have is it stabilizes lysosomes. And when you have inflammation, if your immune cells release lysosomes, that would be normally to... um, Lysosome enzymes are there to bust up bacteria and infected cells. You want to kill them. But if you release these enzymes into tissue, it's going to be non-discriminative. It's just going to kill all sorts of tissue, right? And so one of the effects that cortisol will have is um, stabilise these lysosomes so you have less tissue destruction. So that's important in inflammation. Another thing it does is stops capillary permeability. So it reduces exudate in the tissue. That's a, a, usually a side effect or, or a sign of inflammation is the swelling. Yeah. But that yeah. would be important. Another thing it does is re- reduces prostaglandins. And we've done multiple, or you've probably done more uh, videos on this. Prostaglandins is very important for pain. And so yes. we have something called non steroid anti inflammatories, which would be things like neurofen, uh, aspirin. Yeah. But then we have the steroid anti inflammatories, which would be like cortisone or prednisone. Yeah. And, and this is wrapped up in the prostaglandin. Reducing prostaglandin, which interestingly... Through transcription. Yeah, which is interestingly, in high states of uh, stress, you know how colloquially people say stress causes ulcers? And I know we've kind of partly myth-bust that to say most stomach ulcers are caused by... Helicobacter. uh, ...the bacteria. But if you were to be in a hypercortisone state you may develop gastric ulcers by the effect of the prostaglandin. Yeah. Because um, again, you're disrupting homeostasis. Yeah. Um, I think you've covered Just it. Just over a nose, prostaglandins protect the stomach lining yeah, from yeah. the acid that's present. So if the prostaglandins go, your protection of your stomach goes and the acid is free to start to digest and produce ulcers. So I think we've covered most of the anti-inflammatory effects. Yeah, anti-inflammatory. Bring in just really quickly how it then prom- actually promotes repair. I know we've covered pretty much how it does that. One of the theories behind of how it enhances repair, tissue repair, is that there's just so much amino acids available that the way to construct new tissue 
um, new collagen, at least in the short term, is you've got all these building blocks to make new proteins. Yeah. Another thing is that your cells are much more efficient at um, metabolic processes because there's just so much uh, glucose available for it. Mm. This is probably after it's turned up, but I'll back off. It also removes the negative aspect of inflammation on the tissue so it can repair. Finally, uh, it also allows the building blocks of um, ribonucleic acids. What's the Is that purines and pyrimidines? Yep, purines and pyrimidines. So that's the building block of DNA, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's coming from amino acids? Yeah, they're amino acids. So purines and pyrimidines are varying types of amino acids. So the point here is because these are the building blocks for your DNA, then it, it, it allows processes to make more efficient to make new cells. Makes sense. Yeah, to, so to, to repair all the damage that just happened. Finally, um, you're still talking about yes, immune function. I've just got a few things written down, so I just thought I'd mention it. Um, it's important, cortisol is important for, um, well, this it seems a bit strange, but it reduces the size of lymphoidal tissue. Um, which again stops, blunts the adaptive immune response, which is probably fine in the short term, but this is going to be quite detrimental in the long term. This is hijacked again. We use steroids uh, if we if we want to um, stop tissue rejection. So if you take a person's kidney or not steal them, um, but if you need a transplant, um, usually what they'll use is steroids or uh, these type of glucocorticoids to stop your immune system killing them off. Okay. Finally. No, you said finally four that's, times. That's immune system. This is the interest. Well, one of the interesting I want things. to talk about it, bone. It incre- okay. It increases red blood cell production. Who cares? Cortisol. So Why? It, Why? It bumps Why? up. Uh, I think they th- the theory is it stops the degradation, so it probably stops the phagocytic effects on the cells that – so the Kufta cells. I'm not sure what they're called in the spleen uh, – that – break down red blood cells. And yep. so your red blood cell number actually goes up uh, as a result of a stress response. But are they old red blood yeah, cells? Yeah, potentially. I'm not saying they're more efficient. Is it because the spleen's a lymphatic tissue? Uh, I think it's a secondary lymphatic tissue, yeah. Yeah. And you just said it reduces lymphatics. Lymphatic yeah, I don't, tissue I, I, it, activity. Look, you're probably right. Oh, probably. No, me, I'm right. So It's used in anaphylaxis too. Another function... Another function is going to be that of bone. So what cortisol does is, if you think about bone formation, bone is constantly being formed and remodeled. It's going to be built up with osteoblasts, broken down with osteoclasts. And so what cortisol does is it decreases osteoblast differentiation. So we have less osteoblasts available. And at the same time, increases osteoblast apoptosis. So destruction. So we've got very few osteoblasts available under the rule of cortisol. How is this beneficial though? Just wait. And then osteoclasts, it boosts them up. So the breakdown of bone, it boosts up. Now when you break down bone, you release the inorganics, calcium and phosphate. And calcium and phosphate are important ions for a multitude of roles within the body. So Which just you like have you have in stress response? Well, just like you stated when you increase the amount of building blocks in the bloodstream for after the stress response for recuperation, regeneration, and so forth. This is similar. We've got more calcium and phosphate available in the bloodstream so that we can recoup, regenerate, and maintain homeostasis. And probably work in the real 
stress response. So calcium is important for muscle contraction, yeah. ner- nerve impulses, yep. but also for clotting, which yes. would be imp- highly important when yes. you're running from that tiger. And the great thing is, if after this whole event, you don't utilize all that calcium that's been released, it'll just get chucked straight back into the bone. Because once cortisol is blunted after the stress response, you've now got a pro f- bone formation stimulus and that calcium uh, unlo- unless you've chucked in. Unless you make Chronic. stones. In your calcium kidneys. stones. Yeah, maybe you're right. So these high levels of these hormones will cause kidney stones. Maddie, we need to talk about the different stresses. Okay. We need to talk I think about this, this is you now. I've, I'm going to sit back and listen. All right, see ya. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to talk about how... So we said that stress can stimulate the hypothalamus to release ultimately cortisol at the adrenal gland. But what is what are the different types of stresses? Because we very broadly said it's actual or potential threat to homeostasis, but what are these? So, so that would be important for all animals, more for physical survival, but now we get into the complexity of humans. Yes. Where we have this certain stresses now that maybe other animals don't need to contend with. Yeah, so some of these will be shared amongst vertebrates, mammals, vertebrates, and maybe even lower species. Um, lesser species, as Matt likes to say. Um, <laughs> so... First of which is all of these stress signals do all converge at the paraventricular nuclear of the hypothalamus. So we stated that. So where are these signals then coming from? So one area that these stress signals are coming from is the brainstem. And there's a very specific area in the brainstem in the dorsomedial aspect of the medulla called the nucleus of the solitary tract. This nucleus of the solitary tract is just a group of cells that coalesce signals, afferents, that are coming from viscera of the body. And these viscera, more specifically, are coming from cranial nerves 7, 9, and 10. So that's facial, glossopharyngeal, and vagus. And the way I think about it is think about signals coming from the tongue, the throat, the esophagus, the stomach, the heart, the lungs, the digestive tract. So if there's any issue, any stresses pushing these areas one way or another, they're going to send these signals to the nucleus of the solitary tract, which will then project to the hypothalamus, triggering this stress response and ultimately cortisol. I think this is the lateral line in fish, which is um, how they taste on their skin. What What? 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 what do you mean? The, the tractor solitaris. So that's their taste center. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So the, how they perceive threats. They perceive a lot of threats through their skin. Wow. But obviously, we don't do that so much in humans. No, so, we don't. So we've reverted that to taste. <laughs> we um, taste taste with our tongue. We've also got an area called the lamina terminalis. So if you were to open up a textbook or Google lamina terminalis, the, the where you'd see it is if you know something called the anterior commissure and the optic chiasm, it's t- this thin bit of tissue that sits between those that's two. The, yeah, that's the end point of your neural tube. The is that why it's called lamina terminalis? Yeah. There you go. So that needs to close for your neurotube at the cranial end to close. And that's the problem. Yeah, you would have heard me say it a long time ago. But that's where if you have if you're too hot in utero uh, at about four weeks, oh, yeah. it won't close. Mothers in saunas. And you get anencephaly. So you your head won't develop properly. Wow. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So 
What the laminar terminalis does is it detects one of the things that it does is it detects osmotic changes, so concentration changes of the fluid around it. And so if it becomes too concentrated, the thought is you're dehydrated, mm. right? Because the fluid's gone, you've left the residual so, uh, uh, solved, uh, dissolved particles, ions, for example, it's too concentrated, ooh, I need to stimulate a thirst response. This we, is still a stress response. It is a stress, isn't it? Yeah. So it sends that signal to the paraventricular nuclei of the hypothalamus. But more specifically, it doesn't directly trigger corticotropin-releasing hormone, but triggers another hormone. You've got a question, Matt. Do you think this is partly the reason why the corticosteroids, which, as I said earlier, is a combination of gluco and mineral, there's, there's overlap? Yeah. Yeah, so this, you're saying it's osmotic. So the strongest osmo- osmotic hormone, at least from the adrenal gland, is aldosterone. Yes, which is mineral corticoid. Yep. But the glucocorticoid is just released just below it. Yep. But they both have a bit of function of each. Oh yeah, they cross over. Like the cortisol has cortisol can bind to the same um, aldosterone receptors at the kidneys. Cortisol can promote sodium retention oh, and yeah. therefore water retention. In well. in humans, in humans, okay, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so what what happens in this case is when the lamina terminalis picks up concentration changes, wants to trigger a thirst response, sends a signal to the hypothalamus, doesn't trigger corticotropin releasing hormone to go down that blood supply to the anterior pituitary, but releases ADH from the hypothalamus. Now ADH, antidiuretic hormone, we've spoken about it many times in other episodes. Antidiuresis means to stop us from losing water urinating urinating travels to the kidneys and promotes water retention in the body therefore if we are thirsty or dehydrated we maintain water it's also known as vasopressin or arginine vasopressin in the states for example now here's the thing adh usually is released from the hypothalamus to the posterior pituitary gland through Mm. through nerve signals but in this case adh can jump into that blood supply that the crh corticotropin releasing hormone can jump into and travel to the anterior pituitary and what it does is it potentiates would it do both it does both yeah absolutely yeah yeah, absolutely does both but it can potentiate the release of acth adrenocorticotropic hormone it just continually releases that so while crh can release acth by itself if adh is present huge amounts are released so adh can really promote a stress response and that makes sense because it makes you more vigilant. It has all these various effects. So that's lamina terminalis. And then the last one I want to talk about, which is sort of a feedback role to and from, is that of the limbic areas of the brain, including the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala and the hippocampus. So prefrontal cortex is important when it comes to understanding, cognition, forethought, um, things like that. Amygdala, emotion and your emotional um is it specific emotion like is it more of a negative emotional not necessarily it's just it's just it's not uh, fear based more so well fear is part of the amygdala but it can be also a pleasant memory oh as far as i'm aware yes a, a, a pleasant emotional response so but the, the, so the amygdala in hippocampus is all limbic all limbic. Okay. So the hippocampus is memory like episodic short term light bulb memory amygdala is Emotional memory. And an an emotional link to particular episodes. So would cortisol, uh, its own release, uh, stamp memories into these areas? Yeah, so that's the important thing. So 
These three areas in response to stress can either trigger or inhibit cortisol to be released. But at the same time, when cortisol is released, it does travel to the brain, to these specific areas, Mm. and can alter the way that, one, you perceive the event, frontal cortex, and understand it. Two, your emotional link or association to that event, that's the amygdala, and the way that you remember that event at the hippocampus. And so you can have a negative association with it or you can have a, a more positive. Which, you can, which then can be reinforced for future stress responses? Yeah, so this then can... So this is one of the theories behind depressive states in which you've got this issue with the way that cortisol and these limbic systems interact and you can have a depressive effect, an inhibitory effect or an excitatory effect, which can result in depressive states. So if the way that the amygdala hippocampus prefrontal cortex stimulates or inhibits cortisol, it can alter somebody's psychology. It can alter a psychiatric state and promote a depressive state, for example. So we know that decreases in volume of hippocampus is associated with depressive states. And we know that the hippocampus can inhibit uh, cortisol. So if the hippocampus is smaller, it has less of an inhibitory effect on cortisol and more of an excitatory effect on cortisol. So, can I, can I add so po- more cortisol, increased depressive state. Do, do you can know I, what I'm saying? Yeah, can I add a point here in terms of developmental biology? Um, so uh, something we've, we haven't really touched on at all, uh, maybe a little bit, but cortisol, I know we spoke about the effects that cortisol have in the body to prepare for the next stressful response, but also... Um, to recover from it. Yeah. But another thing is when cortisol is present, it also um, is permissive to the sympathetic nervous system. Yeah. So it makes it more sensitive. So it just, it kind of amplifies all this, the fight and flight response. Now, this could be a good thing. So when they looked at this in animals, so if you were to look at, say, an, an animal that would have predators trying to kill it, you would want to you would want that animal to be releasing a lot of cortisol yeah. for its own survival, right? And so they've done studies... You wouldn't or you would? You would, you yeah. would. Now, they've done studies where they found particular years within the wild of this particular animal, if there's more predators, therefore the animals are going to be more stressed, yes. more vigilant. But the mothers who are, let's say, pregnant are going to be releasing a lot more um, cortisol into their, her blood which then goes into the placenta, into the baby. And then that, the development of the baby is going to have an effect on its uh, stress. The baby's developed in a stressful network. environment That's and right. it's going and so to rewire ba- the circuitry. When the baby's born, it has a more fine, I don't want to say fine-tuned, um, what would you say, upregulated? Yep. Uh, and it's more vigilant yeah. in its stress response. Now, this would be probably a good thing when the stress is... Environmental. Environmental for physical. But now, and they've done these studies in humans, when the mother's stressed and she's pregnant, and the stresses could be all the things that you mentioned, mental stresses, right? Um, Certain things at home, jobs, things like that, Um, social social economic things. Uh, She's releasing more cortisol. The baby's got more cortisol. The baby's more stressed. Mm. And therefore, the baby now gets born... And we go into what you just discussed, having these kind of um, 
deleterious. Um, the system-wide yeah. physiological responses which have been evolved to deal with homeostatic stresses. So now the baby, but now it's, it's an through emotional. its life, is more predisposed to some of these um, anxieties, depressive states yes. because of this developmental biology around cortisol. Yeah. Well, that's where I'm, I'm done with the different types of, of stimuli. Obviously, the sympathetic nervous system um, is, is going to be part of this stimulating the hypothalamus and the hypothalamus stimulating it and so forth. Cortisol, interestingly, when it's released from the zona fasciculata, like you stated, it sort of bleeds through. Oh, yeah. Down into... Per- percolates. The, percolates down into the medulla of the adrenal gland and releases adrenaline. Because you've got to remember with the adrenal gland, it developed in two parts from different locations so the medulla came from it's the medulla is actually just sympathetic neurons you know how you have the sympathetic chain yeah they have two neurons yeah the pre and post ganglionic neuron what's the only exception where it doesn't have a post the medulla uh, the the adrenal gland so there's only the adrenal a the adrenal gland medulla medulla part of the adrenal gland is actually the post ganglionic neurons yes okay yeah so they've just migrated from that part of the side of the and all post ganglionic neurons release Adrenaline. Yeah, noradrenaline. And so, like you were saying, the cortisol is percolating deeper into the adrenal gland and the deepest part are these sympathetic neurons. And so, the cortisol effect on these sympathetic neurons is probably to amplify their release yes. of adrenaline. Yeah. So, it's just going to make that stress response probably amplified. Yep. Well, is there anything else you want to chat about? I think that was pretty good. Well, I hope so. I... It's pretty thorough. I guess my my thinking was whenever I when, when I was a student and you heard cortisol and the stress response, it always seemed to me this very convoluted, negative thing yeah. that um, you want to stop. Yeah, but but just really, it's context. It's specific. highly important, and and for people or for animals that don't have this, it will literally lead to death. Yep, and so and, and that's just basic survival. Oh, and can I just highlight that um, there's no such thing as adrenal fatigue. Okay. There's adrenal insufficiency, but what not ab- adrenal what fatigue. A- what about people, what is it called when people are on high levels of steroids? Yeah. And then they're just taken off rapidly. Oh, that rebound effect that yeah. can happen. Yeah, I'm not sure what that's called. So that wouldn't be so much that your adrenal gland's fatigued. It hasn't got the capacity to release. It's just been negatively fed back so yes. much that it can't react well enough to it. Mm. And now you've got zero amount mm. that you have. It's it's almost like you've got no adrenal gland. Yes, but it does have the capacity to produce yeah. it again and it and it will. Um, but adrenal fatigue is this pseudoscientific alternative medicine thought that um, if you're just, if you've got this underlying sort of stress that's bubbling away, you're releasing so much adrenaline and cortisol over time mm. that it's exhausted and it just can't release anymore. And that is not a thing. Yeah, so I think that, again, goes back to stems back to the fact that we think cortisol is bad. Yes. And so then we have to remove it. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else? Do, no. you, th- do you think we, we should quickly mention uh, all the negative outcomes of it for long term? Just based on sort of just did, based on we? the physiology. I thought we did. I thought we sort of touched upon you know what happens when you've got. To, so if you just think of all the functions that we've outlined, increased blood glucose. That over time, diabetes, 
tissue damage, vascular damage. If you think of breaking down bone too much, osteoporosis. osteoporosis. If you think about suppressed immune system for too long, illnesses and disease. And this is probably why people, say students, studying for exams, final exams, they're studying for like months, right? Maybe six weeks. They're in a kind of a stress. Summer. I know some students who's probably studied for six hours. <laughs> All right, uh, I'm, I'm talking about my second years, not your first years. Now, um, so they've been studying for some time and usually what people talk about is then I get sick. Yes. It's because you've had this kind of long-term stress response yeah. and the, like we spoke about, a, a beneficial effect in the short term is immune suppression but when it's extended, it then can be problematic. Yeah. You've opened the doors, right? You've opened the doors. The, the army is, you've, you've told them to be at rest and uh, a Trojan horse has snuck in and made you crook. Uh, and skin. Skin uh, or wound healing is yeah. diminished long term as well. Look, there's heaps with this. Blood pressure. Th- blood pressure. So cardiovascular, high blood pressure, detriment on the heart. Oh, there's probably going to be... Fat remodeling, adipose remodeling, bone remodeling, all this stuff. So look, one hour and 15 minutes. We've only got three people still listening. So mm. I think we might as well say, Matthew, thank you. Matthew, James, Lorraine, Franklin, Barton. I really do good, appreciate. Good chatting, Michael. Good chatting. Yes, and thank you, everybody. Again, you can uh, you can contact us via email, gubiosciences at gmail You can uh, chat with me on Instagram at Dr. Mark Todorovic or on Twitter at Dr. Mark Todorovic and Matt on Twitter if he ever goes on at Dr. Bartox. Uh, again, Dr. for Doctor for both of us. Uh, apart from that. Please give us a five-star rating on iTunes and Spotify and leave a nice review. Uh, If you're not happy with us, uh, just go somewhere else. Matthew, thank you. Bye, everyone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.